He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Here with the rest of the Munson's, want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. (laughs) And talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. We will start this time with Rigby. Yeah, so it's been about two nights since the slap heard around the world. Still stunned at what I saw. Definitely the craziest moment in Oscar history. We had a little group chat going and... Some of us were asleep, but the, those of us who watched it live, we were st- we were still stunned that it was actually real. I thought it was st- I thought it was staged until Will Smith started crying and apologizing in his in his award speech. So, yeah, that was one for the books for sure. Yeah, I think it's exciting. The uh, security team from the Springer Show gets to come out of retirement for next year's Oscars. <laughs> if anything, that guaranteed that it will be the most boring Oscars ever next year. You can skip <laughs> Oh, yeah. No question. Yeah, and I, I do feel do feel bad for Coda because I really like that movie, and this will never be known as the year that Coda won. It will be known as the year that Chris Rock got bitch slapped by Will Smith. James? I also am recovering from the slap heard around the world, but actually this was a good opportunity for me to learn that this wasn't the craziest thing that has ever happened at the Oscars. Uh, I learned that John Wayne's a huge piece of shit. And that was something I learned because of people saying this was the craziest thing that happened at the Oscars. Apparently, he had to be restrained from attacking a Native American woman who uh, was presenting at the Oscars uh, in the, uh, I think it was the 60s or the 70s. So NWA was right. And uh, fuck John Wayne. So you're saying all of his movie characters are basically him in real life? Apparently, yeah. So that, that is what I learned because everyone was like, oh, damn, this has to be the craziest thing that's ever happened. And everyone's like, well, if you do a quick Google search, <laughs> uh, John Wayne uh, tried to beat up a woman because he's a racist. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. Well, I had no idea. Hollywood rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Case, I went down a crazy rabbit hole last week because I was listening to my favorite radio show, The Bennington Show, and they had a discussion whether or not Brad Pitt is the greatest character actor of all time. And the reason that people don't think he is is because he's too handsome. And by God, I think I agree with them. I think he is an incredible character actor, and he doesn't get enough credit because he's too good looking. Yeah, he is. A lot of people like that. Jude Law is like that. And then when he got a little less handsome, he became like one of the best character actors in the game. (laughs) (laughs) When his hair started to go out, everyone's like, now he's a character actor. There you go. (laughs) So what I'm basically saying is, Brad Pitt, when you're ready for some suggestions on how to ugly it up, I'm here for you, buddy. I am good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Is it you or is it just time that's done that? I don't know. One of those two, right? Both are unforgiving, too. Well, I'm here to apologize to our audience and apologize to you all, and Jay included, because I realized today in our mega list of actors, which I think is approaching 900 at this point, the names that filled the wheel that make the episodes, I did not have Walter Matthau on the list up until today. So I want to apologize to everybody 
for my short-sightedness. Man. Now he is in consideration for future Munson's episodes. I love it. It'd be a fascinating watch, man. He's got some great movies. While we didn't have Walter Matthau, we do have Jay Ledbetter of the In Session Film Podcast is joining us again for his second episode here with the Munsons. Jay was born and raised on the mean streets of suburban Atlanta. Jay has been called by some the most handsome man in podcasting. Still the reigning champ on that one. Thank you, COVID. His looks are only surpassed by his insights, which you will be graced with over the course of this episode. He previously joined us for the Holly Hunter episode. Welcome back, Jay. How's it going? And tell us about the in-session film world. Things are going great. I'd honestly forgotten what rich prose I provided you for my biography last time. Really just sings when you when you say it out loud. But I don't know what you guys are talking about. You're talking about this slap that happened at the Academy Awards. I'm still doing victory laps because the Flash entering the universe is officially the most celebration-worthy moment in film history, according to the fans. And... I think that's just incredible. Um, we need to celebrate the Flash entering the Speed Force more. I'm happy for all the Snyder bros out there, you know, just really letting their voice be heard in ways that they're, they've been so quiet for so long. Yeah. <laughs> finally, you know, finally <laughs> being heard. For them to have their voice heard, I think, is well-deserved. Things are good. Ready to talk some Hidea. I, I think we're going we're gonna to break records tonight, gentlemen, for most listened to podcast. I think this is the one that they'll remember me for, and and I'm excited for that. <laughs> Damn Holly Hunter, right? It's Dan Hedaya. Hey, you know, people aren't going to be seeking their Dan Hedaya fix, but by golly, they're going to get it tonight. That's exactly I think right. more people will listen to this because they'll be like, how the hell are they going to pull off a Dan Hedaya episode? <laughs> Stay listening and find out. That's right. You're about to find out. <laughs> Birthdays, April 7th. Rigby, what do you got for us? First up, notable face and name, Russell Crowe, Gladiator, Beautiful Mind, um, Oscar winner. Career took a bit of a tumble in the mid-2000s, but he rebounded masterfully in The Nice Guys, which I know is one of James's favorites. So Mm. how about Russell Crowe? How old's he turning? Mm. If you're asking me for Gladiator, I would have said like 38. But if you're asking me for that Road Rage movie he had, I'd say 83. (laughs) Unhinged. I'm going to say 62. Okay, that's a good guess. Russell Crowe has been fighting around the world since for 65 years. That's my guess. <laughs> 58. I'll go 60. Sweet. All right. Uh, he is turning 58. Oh, let's it, go. Right on the dot. Nice work. On the button. Wow. Russell Crowe, I, I apologize. Tugger would be so proud of you, Jay. Really would. Another notable name and face, Jackie Chan. Uh, so many Hong Kong kung fu movies in the 90s made himself a star in the American film circuit and has kind of stayed there ever since. It's been around a while, though. Police story. Old movie. Yeah. Rumble Great in the movie. Bronx, ninth, early 90s, too. Mm-hmm. 66. Yeah, as I was saying, I think he was in his 30s when Rumble, when he made it big in the States. So I was going to say 70. I'm going to go with 72. I think he's older. Damn, I am off way off base on your guys' guesses, so I'm just going to kind of shoot in the middle here. I'm going to go with 60. He's turning 68. I think it's oh, Jay wow. again. 66. Nice. You got it. Yeah, uh, this guy. This is also a tough one. Francis Ford Coppola, director of The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, one of Hollywood's most acclaimed directors. I'm interested to see what you guys think of him. 4,000 years old. <laughs> 
Then I'm going to go 3,999 years old. (laughs) Sheesh. I mean, if you do the math on how long ago the freaking Godfather was. 86. Yeah, he's got to be old. 82. 76. 89. James, you have no idea what he looks like, but you won. He's turning 83. Dude, I'm in test taker mode, man. I told you. Damn. Multiple choice. I got it. Jay, nice job. You win two. James, you win one. Good work. Wow. Happy birthday. Let's go. That's a hell of a batting average. Five actors that we tossed onto the wheel. This is episode 59. But the five actors that we threw onto the wheel were Rachel Griffiths, Jamie Foxx, Vanessa Redgrave, Rose Byrne. But none of those matter because the wheel chose Dan Hedaya. And Jay decided to come hang out with us to talk Dan Hedaya. He wanted to challenge the world to say... I think we can we can build an episode around this guy and his career. No no math out on the wheel, but Hideo is sitting pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it, you know? That's the real crime in Hollywood right now. You know what? There are a ton of podcasts out there. We'll cover pretty big mainstream actors, and we'll do it. But it's it's a fun challenge to dig into some of the deeper cuts. So Hideo has 141 credits throughout his career. He has, he's been in 26 TV movies, 45 different television series, and a lot of other mainstream films in between so he's he's done quite a bit in terms of the run we've been on he definitely has the biggest filmography we've seen for a little while but before we get into it we'll start with actor trivia and see if james can stump us fast and furious style for those of you who are new listeners here thank you for one joining us on a character actors podcast that is very uh, respectable of you but what i'm about to do here is read off three facts about dan hedaya Two of them are going to be true about his life, and one of them is in fact not going to be true and is going to be about one of the many cast members of the Fast and Furious franchise. The guys here have to guess which fact is not true. They don't have to guess which actor it's actually about, but for bonus points on my score sheet, they by all means can. Fact number one, he joined the Merchant Marines to avoid being forced to work in his family's business. Fact number two, prior to his acting career taking off, he waited tables in a mech... Mexican restaurant while also managing a pet store. Fact number three, in Hebrew, his surname means Riverbanks. Man, these all sound like Dan Hedaya characters. <laughs> <laughs> and that last one could very well be Gal Gadot. Who knows? That's what I'm going with. I'm going I'm going three is a lie. And Kyle, you took the words right out of my mouth, Gal Gadot. That's a very reasonable guess. But it's not the right answer because I think number two is not true, and that is that Shea Wiggum. He managed a pet store before he got big because I'm on my Shea Wiggum kick, and one of these times I'm gonna get it right. Kyle, I have looked up Shea Wiggum facts, he's a very private man <laughs> and a courier. I don't care what you need to do, figure it out. Very, this is a very private life. I'm going two as well, and man, I don't know who on earth. Could have possibly done it. I'm going to say um, Ludacris wasn't around for a while. I'm guessing during that weird gap in his uh, music career, he he was hitting hard times. <laughs> had, to, had to work the double shift at the pet store. Oh, my God. I hope he's right. I hope you're right. Ludapets. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know James is heavily influenced by social media, and I got word that there's some social media going around that Tokyo Drift 2 is the best Fast and Furious movie. So because of that, I think James chose Lucas Black mm. for this one. Well-known character actor, uh, actor Lucas Black, who has only played characters from his hometown in Alabama. <laughs> so no one guessed uh, number one, joined the Merchant Marines to avoid being forced to work in his family's business. 
So that is true. Um, Hedaya grew up in a very tightly knit Syrian Jewish community in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Probably one of the reasons why he actually gets to play anyone from New York, regardless of their ethnicity, is because he very much fits that stereotype. Uh, He plays a ton of Italians, despite not being Italian at all. He was expected to join the import-export business, but he truly fled as a teenager, joined the Merchant Marines, ironically enough, do importing and exporting. And then later attended Tufts, where he performed, uh, started performing in the campus theater, Tufts University. Fact number two, prior to his acting career taking off, he waited tables at a Mexican restaurant while also managing a pet store. It's true. He uh, struggled at first, like most people getting into the acting business. Uh, he was teaching English for a few years at various junior high schools, waiting tables, and managing a pet store. When, you, when he was asked about it, he pretty much said, I had to get away from the Syrian community because it was asphyxiating. Uh, Had I stayed, I'd probably become a wealthy but very unhappy businessman and just working on importing stuff from Taiwan. At a Lifetime Achievement Award in the Syrian community, he mentioned how his brother-in-law approached him when he was younger saying, like, you know, there's really no money in acting. Like, why don't you just join this business with me? And, you know, 60 years later, I think he made the right call. Yeah. Fact number three, in Hebrew, his surname means riverbanks. You guys nailed it right off the jump. This is actually about Gal Gadot, a.k.a. Giselle Yashar from the action film Fast and the Furious. Under too easy. Yes, of course. Uh, the fourth film in the franchise. Uh, Hedaya actually in Arabic means guidance. Well, yeah. I mean, I knew that. Let's let that fact guide us. I love it. <laughs> import, import, export, guidance. That's right. Tell you what he did. He imported his way into the hearts and minds of movie lovers everywhere. This is a man who is very, he's a homebody. He's very polite. He's not on social media. No controversy in his life. And so like when you look up facts about him, they don't exist. It's just like, oh, no, he's a really nice guy. I enjoyed working with him. You're like, <laughs> cool. Can't wait to talk about that on the podcast. Not many Hadea appearances on TMZ. <laughs> no, not at all. Interesting. Let's see if we can do something about that. I was about to say, let's get let's spice his career up. Right. That's what we're going to do here. All right. Good job, James. I'm glad I kind of got it right, but I didn't stick to my guns. Congratulations, Rigby, on your victory. Case, what do we got in terms of box office snapshot? Well, you know, we've already alluded to the fact that he's he's much more of a character actor than anything. He's been a part of some some pretty good projects and he's he's been a part of some stinkers, too. It's really tough to, like, pin down which ones if any, that he has any box office responsibility for. I will say some notable bombs. Freeway was budgeted for $3 million and grossed 295000 He's got a lot of movies that lost a lot of money. But again, I'm not sitting here going, man, Dan Hedaya, if he just would have done better in this project, it would have done better. I think he's just too much of a character actor to really be held culpable for any of those performances. Box office poison, Dan Hedaya. <laughs> You're saying. I'm not going to go that far yet, but I will let you guys draw your own conclusions. There you go. I will give you some stats. In terms of average film budget, he's 55 out of 59. Total box office ranking is 39th out of 59. It's a character actor, and it's really tough to pull any numbers but um like i said i think he does well with critic rankings does he does okay with fan rankings just the box office side of things and and just po- general popularity he's just really low compared to other people okay 55th out of 59 we'll see how that once a meter score lines up on the back end appreciate you gentlemen all right early days james hit most of it so i, I only have a few little 
nuggets to add before we start getting into performances. Uh, he's born, I think, in 1940. That's correct. First acting roles in 1975. So he really didn't hit the scene until he was in his mid 30s. So before that, like you would from you know between the age of 18 and 35, you're going to do a bunch of other jobs. So teaching and all the other things that James had mentioned. Um, started studying acting at HB, HB Studio in New York City. And again, given he's from that area. And his first ever role was actually a recurring TV role, which is pretty rare for the actors that we cover. Normally, it's just like a one-off episode or a TV movie. But he did 10 episodes of Ryan's Hope as Herbie in 1975 so coming out of the gate with a recurring role that's it's kind of a big deal for the first role his first movie was called the passover plot it's available on youtube at the time of recording he played yakov he plays one of the zealots in a, a movie that basically rewrites the story of jesus where it's a it's an alternative jesus one who is not supernatural but one that has friends who Pulls the old switcheroo out of his little tomb at, at the end of the movie in, in the origin story of Jesus. So if that interests you, probably doesn't. But if it interests you, you could check it up on YouTube. And he's in a couple scenes. Kyle, <laughs> this might be coming out on Easter. <laughs> well, look at that. What a connection. What a connection to make. On the backside of your, your 40 days of Lynch, you can, you can watch a, the Passover plot and watch them rewrite Jesus' story. Blasphemy. At the risk of being sacrilegious, but still going for the joke, is there any way that him and Jesus have a dance-off to settle things at the end of this movie? That would make it really exciting, but, he, you know, <laughs> the zealots operate in the shadows. I don't know if you knew, Case. That's his first movie, but in 76, he did an episode of Kojak, four TV movies. So there, here come the TV movies made for TV films. And then he did his first stage work in 78 alongside a younger Sigourney Weaver. In Conjuring an Event, he played Smitty. I read the reviews from the New York Times, and they called it as arbitrary as it is unpleasant, <laughs> which sounds positive. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong here. I actually don't even know what that sentence means, but it's hilarious. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was actually a review for our pod, like my podcast. <laughs> oh, is that the in session thing? I screwed that up. Maybe, or maybe somebody repurposed it. It is. A, it's a very famous review. That's that's true. But what I will say in the same New York Times article, it says Dan Hedaya, playing another friend of Charlie's, possesses a pleasing and entirely appropriate air of foreboding. So you case you thought you didn't understand the first sentence. Try that one out for size. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with it. Yes, I agree. An appropriate air of foreboding. That is, that's Dan Hedaya in a nutshell right there, y'all. He's done some stage work. Not a ton, but that was the first one in 78. Followed it up with a role as Alex in The Seduction of Joe Tynan in 79. And had his first detective role. Important to note, because he does this a lot in his career in Death Penalty in 1980 is detective corso lee corso not nearly as cool <laughs> hill street blues he played ralph five episodes of that between 81 and 84 does an episode of chips and uh, some other s small tv stuff in the late 70s and early 80s so a lot of tv work but you see that first detective role which is detective lieutenant all of those things you see a lot in his career going forward mm-hmm and that's going to take us to what we're going to call first major role. Major might come with a caveat here because it is Dan Hedaya, but we're going to talk about 1983's The Hunger. And Jay, as our guest Munson, drew the straw on first major role. So interested to hear how his viewing went. 
Yeah, before we kind of talk about that, I think we need to establish the the Pee-wee, Pee-wee's Playhouse kind of word of the day, which this week is going to be, he's not in it that much. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah! I, I, <laughs> oh, he said the magic word. <laughs> we'll preface this by saying Dan Hidea is not in The Hunger a, a terrible amount, but does leave an impression to me mostly because, like, remember when people in movies could look like Dan Hidea? Yeah. Got just what a look that guy has. I mean, disheveled hair just all over the place gives the movie so much character. He's got an amazing chin, his hair is crazy. It's uh, he's got a look, an indescribable you can't replicate that look that he's got. But yeah, as for the hunger itself, this is Tony Scott's first feature film, and I had never seen it before. And let me just ask you. You like movies that are just all vibes, just vibes, just energy and and tone, because that's what the hunger is. Tony Scott, like the ultimate maximalist, he's just like going big with everything, a lot of sex, a lot of violence, the the very painterly. Tony Scott is a commercial. He comes from the world of commercials, and this movie kind of looks like the sexiest perfume commercial ever. Yes, it does. I I actually really vibed with this movie a lot. I would really recommend it. It kind of inspired me to go. I'm going to go down a a Tony Scott rabbit hole and just watch all of his movies because of it. And what's his relation to Ridley Scott? They brothers? Yeah, they're brothers. They they were. He passed away several years ago. But but he's, yeah, he's a crazy filmmaker. I mean, you think Ridley Scott is like crazy visuals and crazy style. Tony is just like a maniac. And it's, it's a really cool movie. I mean, David Bowie has a really cool role in it. Catherine Deneuve, the legendary French actress, I think is wonderful in the film. Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve have uh, a very intimate, compelling, compelling scenes together. Uh, I will say that. <laughs> I, I liked it a lot. I, I'm really glad I got to watch it. So shout out Hidea for uh, making me watch this movie. In The Hunger, yeah. we are treated to basically one scene where he's a detective looking for a missing girl. And then at the end, he does the same thing, but events of the movie have changed kind of his perspective and, and the entire case that he's working on. And we just see him kind of estranged and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together at the end. But that's kind of it. Two two scenes, really, if I remember correctly. We've got a young Willem Dafoe. One scene in this. Did you catch him? Yeah, like three seconds by the phone booth. I know. He is second phone booth guy on IMDb in the movie. But he gets a line. <laughs> Made the most of it. It's a vampire movie that never mentions the word vampire at any point in time. And I actually think the movie works better when it's not like explicitly being a vampire movie, in my opinion. Agreed. Yeah. You guys have given me unnecessary homework. Like homework that I'm forcing <laughs> upon myself. I got to go watch some Tony Scott movie that nobody's talked about in 25 years. Before Blood Simple, we've got a couple projects, quick ones to mention. So we in 1984, we have Reckless, which technically I think is the largest audience gap. It's either audience gap or critic gap, but we did a deep dive on this movie in the Daryl Hannah episode. This is the one that Dame said is his story. Oh, that's right. The one that ends with him like taking his motorcycle into the high school and telling Daryl Hannah to get on. They ride off into the sunset to a Bob Seger song. <laughs> that's this movie. I love it. It's got a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't replicate that one because we'd already done the full deep dive. But is that good? Is it like golf? Yeah, you want the lowest score possible. <laughs> it's like points on your license. The less, the better. <laughs> and then he uh, appears in three episodes of Saint Elsewhere as Joseph in 84. And that's going to take us to highest critic score. 
which is going to feature a lot more Dan Hidea, and that is Blood Simple. And Rigby has been chopping at the bit to talk about this one. It's a noir crime film. It stars Frances McDormand in her first ever role, John Getz. You may remember as the creepy guy in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, the uh, cinematic masterpiece that we reviewed in the Christina Applegate episode. Our boy Dan Hedaya and M. Emmett Walsh. Dan Hedaya plays Julian Marty, the owner of a Texas bar, in which one of his employees, Ray, played by John Gatz, has an affair with his wife, Abby, played by Frances McDormand. After discovering that they are having an affair, Marty hires a private investigator, played by M. Emmett Walsh, to kill both of them. And just as you can guess with noir films that you've seen in the past, not everything goes to plan, the wrong people die, and there are a lot of plot twists. The film's themes are common with what you see in some, in, in some Coen Brothers movies, a lot of mistrust, suspicion, corruption, and also tragic consequences that come from what can happen when there's miscommunications in, in a relationship or in family or just in overall day-to-day communication. I actually think Dan Hedaya is the best part of this movie, and I'll, the reason is is because even though he is the guy who hires a private investigator to kill his wife and his and her lover, I think he ends up being the victim in this movie. It's funny, he plays like cold and calculated, but also like heartbroken and sulking all in one. He's kind of like totally screwed over. You can't, you can't really help but feel bad for him. It's nowhere near Fargo, Miller's Crossing, or No Country for Old Men in terms of the great crime movies that the Coens have done. But seeing that it is their first movie, I'll forgive them for that. But all that being said, I think Dan Hedaya is the best. He's the best actor in the movie. While he might not be in it the most and might not have the most screen time, uh, his scenes, you come away really, really respecting his performance. He plays just like a seedy bar owner really well. Even like, he probably fits better as like a bar owner in like Brooklyn than like West Texas, but it still works here. So yeah, a great, great decision on him to, to take part in this movie. And, and it's, it was a good decision all around by him. And, and I'm, glad that this, I'm glad that this film is his highest critic score because it's, it's you know, you look at the Rotten Tomato scores, it's 93 and, and it's kind of stood the test of time. So I agree with you in regards to he's a bad guy, but he's a sympathetic character when you watch this. Like he is a slime ball and an abusive husband. Is, is he a husband or a boyfriend? He's controlling, but like as the movie goes on, like you feel for him. Like this guy's put a hit out on his wife, and so you know he's a piece of shit. But like as it plays out, you're like, oh man, he's being mocked by everyone at every turn. Like nothing is going his way, and he's going down in flames the whole time. And I also agree. I think he stole every scene he was in. And to be fair to the Coens, if Blood Simple is your 13, 14, 15th best movie or whatever, you're doing pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> So this is the only movie, the crossover with my first appearance, Holly Hunter, who famously, it's like the voice on the phone or something. Isn't that what she is in this? Yeah. But, yep. Um, no, there's one other one with Holly. We'll talk oh, about. is there? Okay. Yeah, there's one other one. A Life Less Ordinary. It's got Tucci uh, and Cameron Diaz as well. It's a big, it's a big Munson crossover. Ewan McGregor, right? Mm-hmm. My favorite scene in this movie is when he confronts the guy who's having an affair with his wife, the guy he used to manage. And you can tell in like the threatening tone, but also in the like, I'm also really fucked up by it tone where he's like, what I find so funny about this is that you think like she's into you. 
And like, it's a moment where that guy could totally just, you know, like big dick and be like, dude, I'm fucking your girl. But he like completely undresses that guy in front of him by saying, he's like, you actually think she likes you. Like, that's not what's happening. It's like, you're dating a crazy person. That's the highest critic score. 93, 88 across the board. This, the largest critic app is the same year. So there's only, there's a couple things to note before that. A couple more TV movies. So 84 is a very busy year for Dan uh, coming out of the gate here. And then he is in a movie we've mentioned a couple times, but I finally watched for the first time, and that's The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, the movie that Case really wanted me to say on the Jamie Lee Curtis episode because their scenes were deleted. It's it's worth a watch. It is bonkers. Yes. I rewatched it in the last couple days on and off. Two things struck me in my rewatch. So first of all, I watched this movie a lot growing up because it was always on HBO. And on my rewatch for this episode, it has nothing to do with Dan Hedaya. But number one... Buckaroo Banzai character is basically the premise for the most interesting man in the world, beer commercials. He's the original guy. Totally is. He does brain surgery. He drives cool cars. He's in a rock band. He, he does it all. And Jeff Goldblum. The actual most interesting man in the world. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> the writers and directors of this should have got some money from Independence Day because clearly the director of Independence Day said, Jeff Goldblum, I want you to do what you did in Buckaroo Banzai. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's the exact same character. It's it's a really cool cast. Clancy Brown is in this. Ellen Barkin, Christopher Lloyd. Dan plays an alien in this. Not a huge role. Again, smaller role. But John Lithgow plays the main baddie, and he is maniacal as hell. And I really wish this would have been a movie I watched before we recorded that episode two a long, long, long time ago. Because he's, yeah. he's fantastic. Very memorable in this movie. RoboCop is Buckaroo Banzai, right? Isn't it RoboCop? Yeah, Peter Weller. Yep, yeah. It's a it's a weird fucking movie. It's probably a movie if you're into acid, this is like right up your alley. Watch on that. But <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, you know, for our acid listeners out there, this is right up your fucking alley. It's a it's a weird ass movie, and don't go go to it for Hidea, but it is it's definitely worth checking out. All right, so largest critic app is 1984's Tightrope, and that's my review. It's got an 85-50 split on Rotten Tomatoes, so 35-point difference between the, the critics and the audience here. It is a Clint Eastwood vehicle, in technically in acting only, but I'll get into the minutiae of the direction. So the direction of the screenplay is by Richard Tuggle, who, if you don't know who Richard Tuggle is, he doesn't have much. He only did five projects. He wrote the screenplay for Escape from Alcatraz with Eastwood. Mm. Um, he did one episode of Tales from the Crypt. And he directed one other movie after this, Out of Bounds. And what I learned is that apparently our boy Tuggle didn't particularly enjoy wearing underwear while filming in New Orleans. And there's one particular story where his junk was hanging out the bottom of his shorts. And Clint Eastwood had to be like, hey, guy, I got to go get you out of here to not show you, like, have your penis flopping all around for the entire crew. So this gives you kind of an idea of, I think, the carelessness of this particular individual. Wow. He was also reportedly really slow behind the camera. And so from what I could read, Clint Eastwood basically directed this in an uncredited way, but it was Richard Tuggle. So I think that's why you only see him directing one more picture after this. I don't think he was quite cut out for the directing game when it all played out. Tightrope is about a New Orleans single dad and cop named Wes Block, who is played by Clint Eastwood who goes after a serial rapist killer, but when he gets too close, the hunter becomes the hunted. Basically, 
how this story goes. It's a very kinky movie. It's a very sexually driven kinky movie. And every time Clint Eastwood gets entangled with a woman, she ends up getting killed serial killer. So he's he get he's getting choked by a girl, that girl dies, right? He goes to a club, he goes to a strip club, meets a girl, she dies. He is hooking up with this other girl at her place, things are getting weird, she dies. And so every time he goes to the scene to figure out the next victim, he realizes, oh, I was just with that woman the night before. And so that's kind of the interplay that's going on in this movie. Lots of S&M references, handcuffs, slapping. And apparently Eastwood, it wasn't just on screen. He was having affairs with multiple women on set during the filming. So it's a very sexual movie from top to bottom. I mean, it's saying Allison Eastwood is in this. That's his daughter. He has two daughters in the story. Yeah, yeah. So one of the daughters is his real daughter, and all this craziness is going on with his daughter being on the set. Padilla plays Detective Molinari, who's essentially Eastwood's partner, so law enforcement role. He's about as boring as a detective can be. I'll say this. He masterfully avoids taking away any of the spotlight from Clint Eastwood, because it's very much his movie. And... The film culminates with the slowest foot chase I've ever seen in cinematic history. (laughs) These two men are jogging after one another in what is supposed to be a a high-stakes chase. That's more realistic, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would get it after running for like three minutes, two or three minutes, but the whole time, they're just having like a light jog after each other through a cemetery, which I thought was entertaining. You mentioning Clint Eastwood struggling to keep his dick in his pants. His son, Scott Eastwood, who was... Born out of a one-night stand was uh, in his mother's belly a year later. So it seems like that was kind of Clint's thing at the moment. And think about 1984, a movie with choking, slapping, handcuffs, a lot of S&M scenes. It's kind of racy for that time. Yeah. He said in press that he was uh, worried that it wasn't going to be received well because of a lot of the sexual references to it. You know, that's a different different moment than it is today. But it was an interesting watch. I don't know if I'd go the 85 level that critics gave it. I think a 60 is is fair. You know, a little bit closer to the audience side, the 50 to 60 range. Worth the watch then, kind of? I would just for... <laughs> it's got its own vibes to it. I think it's entertaining. I've, I'd recommend it to people. I don't think it's a bad movie. Don't have high expectations for your foot chases. That's all I say. <laughs> but if you want to watch a movie where every girl he messes with gets, gets killed, uh, you found it. I mean, why wasn't this a, a Dirty Harry movie? They were going to film it in San Francisco. They intentionally with New Orleans to separate it from the Dirty Harry universe. Okay. I read that as well. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood was in love with Eastwood at this time, so it makes sense why critics received it high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a bad movie. All right, so we got 12 years until the next review. A lot of stuff here. I mean, and again, he's got 141 credits, so we're not mentioning everything. We're just hitting a lot of the highlights. But where would we be without mentioning his appearance in... Number one new show, Miami Vice, from 1984 to 1986. Great Miami Vice, Miami Vice character actor, because he just is so sketchy. Like, he just, and that's exactly, he just looks like a, I don't know what episode he's in, I don't know what he plays, but he just looks like somebody who would be like, give me like a Miami drug lord, like that's who I want right there. Who said he had great chest hair? Was that you, Craig? Yeah, my man's my man's got great body hair. With chest hair like that, you have to be on Miami Weiss in the eighties, right? Like that's that's a given. Yeah. Right. That would be chest hair wasted if you weren't. Should have brought him back for the movie. 
Probably. Probably. Yeah. Could have played a detective in the movie. Come on, Michael Mann. <sighs> Seriously. But one of his biggest TV show runs in the 80s was his role as Nick Tortelli on Cheers from 84 to 93. He did six episodes. His character was successful enough and compelling enough that they created a spinoff, 13 episodes, The Tortellis, in 1987. People liked his character that much. He played Carla's ex-husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know Corey mentioned it last time as we were wrapping up. Surely still cashing checks from that, too. Just That's just free money. Mm-hmm. Best. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Six episodes, got a got an sh- extra show that had more episodes than his actual appearances on the show itself. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. But 1985, he's in Commando, a movie I know Rigby was really excited to talk about. Oh, yeah, of course. This is a... Warren and I, Warren Hicks and I made a uh, guest appearance on a podcast uh, about two years ago to talk about this. It was on the CP3 podcast if you want to check it out. This is one of the one of the movies that comes to mind when you say it's so bad it's good. It's got Absolutely. It. How many people die? 180 or something like that? You play a drinking game to this where it's every time someone dies you take a sip of a beer and you're like, oh, how bad could that be? And by the end of the movie, when people are getting blown away in the 10s and 20s and 30s at a time, you're wasted. <laughs> the end of the movie, when when the uh, general comes to him, he's like, save anything for me? And Arnold goes, just bodies. <laughs> that just shows how uh, how crazy the movie gets. But yeah, it's Dan Hedaya is the villain in this. He's the main bad guy. Yeah, he's the main bad guy. What's his ethnicity supposed to be in this? Uh, he's a drug He's a no. He's a former dictator from Cuba or something, or like well, from some or like Nicaragua or somewhere like that. But Arnold Arnold steals the movie. I mean, he's just his one-liners. You know, everything from or breaking the guy's neck on the plane and saying, "Don't wake my friend. He's dead tired." I love that. <laughs> you said you'd kill me last. Yeah, I lied. Just <laughs> the one where he stabs the guy into like the steam pipe or something. I've actually never seen Commando. Oh, man, you're missing out. Yes, I think that is correct. I'm to blow off some steam. Yeah, he's a pretty good baddie in this movie. I think he does well. Yeah, he's good. It's his accomplices that are cheesy, I think. Like, the guys working for him are really bad. Yeah. Did I miss it? Is this his first role as the bad guy? Yeah, I think so. At least big one. I just, I looked it up. He's a dictator of a fictional country from Central America called Valverde. Valverde, there that's there right. You go. James, does it say in there what Valverde's biggest exports are? Probably guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's his. Unless you count his character in Blood Simple as a bad guy. I mean, kind of. Who is, but like, you yeah. feel bad for him. Sympathetic bad guy, but yeah. He's got this, don't disturb me, I'm too busy, but he's really short with people when he talks to them. That works so well, parallelly with being a police officer or a detective and... Being a crime lord. <laughs> yes. Oh, accurate. absolutely. You're barking directions. Uh, he dies in a hilarious way, uh, as most people do in this movie. He is, uh, he's at the top of a balcony and just raining machine gun fire down, and none of the bullets hit at all. And Arnold just like tucks and rolls out and blasts him right in the belly with a shotgun. And he just throws his corpse off the balcony. It's, it's great. There you go out right there, baby. Well, he plays another mob boss type in a movie I'll mention here in a moment. Uh, he is in an episode of The Twilight Zone in 85, an episode of The Equalizer 86, so again, big shows in the 80s. And then he's in the movie Wise Guys, the De Palma film. He plays Mr. Costello, the mob boss in that movie as well, with Danny DeVito. From what I know, as far as like post Carrie, this is like De Palma's like first comedy movie, because he had done 
if you watch the if you watch the documentary uh, called the Palma, he talks about how he had done like Carrie, uh, Scarface, but he had just done like all of these like dark movies, and he's like, I need to do a comedy, so he switched it up, and <laughs> yeah, this is like one of the few comedies that Brian De Palma has ever done. Wrote a story about how two men were hired to kill each other as hitmen, but mm-hmm. have to pretend like they're not going to kill each other on the road trip. Yeah, Joe Piscopo and yeah, Joe Piscopo from SNL fame. Interesting, interesting uh, career that mm-hmm. guy had. I thought with this movie, it was one of those movies where if he pl- like he's playing the you know the prototypical mob boss, and it if he would have gone too far with it, it'd be like cool. He's just another you know kind of cartoon character that's played this mob boss but like he plays it just enough where it's like short temper you know i got the accent and the scowl but like it's not too cartoony and he intimidates the crap out of the guy at the start so interesting film it's available on youtube you want to check it out 86 he did four tv movies in that one year so I mean, he's riding the tails doing a lot of stuff holy he does an episode of who's the boss <clears throat> in 89 He's alongside a young Keanu Reeves and Tune In Tomorrow is Robert in 1990. And then also 90, he is in a movie called Joe versus the Volcano. He plays Mr. Waturi, uh, a movie that he opens with dialogue and a very unique and different character. I watched it right before this. Did you? Rules. Please. It's awesome, right? Yeah. I'm so glad I finally watched this one too. This is one that's kind of been on my list forever because I'd only seen images of it and it was like that looks like a cartoon version of Temple of Doom. What's going on there? <laughs> uh, don't don't get it. Hanks kind of pre superstar America's boyfriend. Hanks preceded him being America's dad, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, it's like zany and kind of fantastical, but super sincere and life affirming. It's it's. Mm-hmm. really interesting movie really well designed uh, i don't know from the director of doubt of course so yep um, <laughs> wait what yeah yeah only directed three movies john patrick know. shanley he's a playwright mostly he wrote like moonstruck and got this movie off of that this is an expensive looking movie too mm-hmm. um but he's is it doubt a play did he write that wrote the play and then the screenplay and directed the movie and he had his third directed movie, I think, came out like last year. It's called Wild Mountain Time, and I think it's supposed to be absolutely oh, yeah. god awful with like with the Jamie, Jamie Dornan. Yeah, Dornan and then like John Hamm is in it, I think. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was um, people absolutely derailed, derailed it. It was awful. Yeah, it, I've heard it's almost crazy enough to watch, but but I don't know. But as as for this movie, I mean, Hadea, uh, not in this movie a lot. Ah! But um. <laughs> <laughs> like he has a fake argument with a guy named Harry every time that Tom Hanks walks into the office. It's a very odd character. It's very different from some of the stuff I saw him do in other movies. He's like fourth build, though. Shout out Dan Hedaya and those checks. Mm-hmm. And also Meg Ryan. She plays multiple characters in this movie. And I'm pretty sure the first character she plays, Jay, I couldn't tell if it was the greatest interpretation of a character that might like be on the spectrum or the absolute worst acting I've ever seen in my life. Like I, I really don't know how I, to I perceive know. it. I'm going to give her credit. I thought she was really good in this movie. I had such a fat crush on every one of her characters. I don't know. She's doing her job. <laughs> they were all adorable in their own unique ways. Yeah. She played three different characters in this, right? At least two might've been three, uh, three. Yeah. Three, three. The first one is so cartoonish. That I was like, I don't know. This might be the worst thing I've ever seen. I mean, the first part of the movie almost feels like a Tim Burton movie or something. It does. It's like so stylized. Mm-hmm. And, and then it kind of changes into something different. So it's a 
highly recommend that movie. I really liked it. I'm uh, with you 100%. If you're listening, check it out. 91, he plays Tully, the uh, family attorney in the Adam Sandley, a movie alongside Angelica Houston. Love his performance in this. Yeah. Love the Adams family. And his kind of, you know, constant torment plays really well when going off of like Raul Julia's like complete zaniness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've, they uh, fence twice in this movie. Yeah, and it's like he's just <laughs> fucking around, but he's, he's almost killing him the whole time. Dan is good in this. Yeah, I think yeah, I, agree. I think he does well in this type of role. Nice to see him stretch his roles a little bit and go to attorney. Yeah, exactly. Stepped away from the law enforcement for a moment. Well, then he's another authority where he plays the GM Larry in Rookie of the Year, 1993, a movie that gave us one of the best lines in what I think is kid movie history. And that's, did he just say funky butt loving? <laughs> Always love that. It's one of my favorite go-tos. <laughs> Masterpiece. Don't you love this movie, Kyle? I have a soft spot for the Rookie of the Year. I okay. watched it a ton when I was a kid. I don't, I don't know if I love it, but I saw it so much, it's hard not to enjoy it, the nostalgia. 50, 50 times. Yeah, It's so good. Was like for a, for a baseball-loving kid, this was where it was at. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rookie of the Year, is a, it's a classic for sure. Kyle, just because of his recent string of injuries, is hoping that this actually <laughs> happens to him one day. And he just casually is... Throwing 105 down the pipe. That's right, baby. <laughs> Searching for Bobby Fischer. He plays the tournament director, small role in a movie alongside Laura Linney. Oh, he said it. Oh, my God. And then 93, Benny and June. He plays Thomas, uh, an employee at the mental institution in this movie. It's one I watched in the background today as well. Law and Order. Two episodes between 93 and 97. Yeah, they got to do Law and Order, right, James? You got to do of it. Of course. I mean, you're from New York. It, you probably could knock this out on a lunch lunch break. He was either murdered, the murderer, he was sexually assaulted, or he was the person who did the sexual, sexual assaulting. And that's it. That's all. That's all you can He's be. A, probably a perp, to be yep. honest. He's twitchy in Maverick, 1994. My wife loves Maverick. And I was like, I don't remember him in this movie at all. And so we watched it and he has one line and he is not addressed as a character. It's they're describing the poker tournament. And like, if you cheat, they'll throw you off the boat. And he's like, pretty much just says like, Oh, okay. That sounds fair. And has like a tick and that's it. And you never see him again. He's never heard from again. I was like, all right, that doesn't count. I don't count that as a no, role. it's so small. I guarantee you he delivers that line with so much integrity and presence, though. <laughs> Come, yeah. He's best seen in the whole movie. No question. Oh my god. Commands uh, the screen. First awards recognition of any kind, really, any major one in 1994. He got a primetime Emmy nom for his appearance on NYPD Blue. So proud. So proud of him. Wait, you're telling me he was in a cop sh- a cop show? No, yeah, it's weird. Interesting casting, right? I blame the industry for typecasting him at this point. That's all. I- <laughs> it's not his fault. It's the industry. Oh, that's what it is. He could say he just can't say no, right? Uh, Usual Suspects '95 alongside our boy Gabe Byrne and the Burnaholics played Jeff, him and Chaz. That yeah, the, do, the whole movie the takes thing. place in his office. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he, oh, in this one, he's. Uh, I'm looking at my notes. A police officer, weird. An officer of the law. I believe he's a captain still. Court, Courtney captain. B. Vance, eat your heart out. When are we gonna get that power duo? Oh, please. Dan and Courtney, had Courtney, Vance Courtney B. And movie. Criminals don't stand a chance. 
one thing I found funny in rewatching this movie is it takes place in California, but every character is from New York. Yeah. There are no Californians in this movie at all. To the point where I was like, there's no way his office is based in California and they don't at least explain how he got there. But like Chaz Palminteri's like, yeah, I flew in for this case. All the criminals, you know, committed the crime in this case, but they met in New York and with Dan die. It's like, oh, and he just happens to work here. I was like, how did he get here? I want to know how he got here. A weird origin story that you want to get dig into? You want the prequel, James? Do you want the prequel? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I do. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. This, I think, is my favorite Benicio Del Toro performance. Oh, he's great. High praise. I won't go that far, but I do love his... I think he's hysterical in this role. <laughs> I love the opening scene when they're reading the lines, and he's like, can you, can you say it in English? And he's like, give me the gun, you fucking cocksucker. What the fuck? Flip you. Flip for real. <laughs> like, what do you mean? And he starts doing the hand motions like, he'll flip you. He'll flip you. <laughs> <laughs> to Die For, 95 as well, alongside Matt Dillon and Nicole Kidman. Played Joe. It's a big year. Big year for Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Usual suspects to Die For. Nixon plays Trini, which we'll, we'll see the Nixon connection coming back in an Oliver Stone film. But the big one from 95 is Clueless. Yeah. Plays Mel, her dad. With some iconic one-liners in that movie. That's what he's known for the most, right? No question. Yeah. He even said that like he wasn't recognized even walking around where he's from until after Clueless. When you look him up on IMDb on his star meter ranking, it also has a column that says people also viewed. And it has Justin Walker from Clueless, Alicia Silverstone, Clueless, Brittany Murphy, mm-hmm. Clueless, Stacey Dash, Clueless, and Brecken Meyer, Clueless. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Movie rules, by the way. Yeah, it's it's not that he's like mean, it's he's like stern, overprotective, you know, and like yeah, right. and she's like a funny idiot, and he's like, I love you, but you need this. <laughs> you know, like he totally He's just frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> he's just a busy guy. He's always he's always working. You are you going out in that? Looks like underwear. <laughs> he's importing and exporting, probably. No, he's a he's a lawyer in this. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. He, he, no, but he's a trade lawyer. Right there, you go. What's the lines like? He gets paid five hundred dollars an hour to argue with people, which is crazy because he like argues with me all the time for free. <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt that this prepared him for his what's his best role, and that's. And Will Ferrell's dad. Savor it. Savor it. Savor it. I also love the line when he's talking to that dude who's like taking her out on a date. And he's like, he's like, uh, if anything happens to my daughter, I have a 45 and a shovel, and I'm sure nobody's going to miss you. <laughs> the dude just like stops in his tracks. Like, okay. <laughs> okay, guy. It speaks to how quotable that movie is that even he has like seven fantastic lines in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, movie movie's awesome. Yes, it is. And it's still culturally relevant. So that movie's awesome. According to the audience, they would think that the first Wides Club is semi-awesome from 1996, and that's going to be our largest audience gap. And James is going to tell us if he thinks it's awesome. So the first Wives Club is based on a book uh, that came out in 1992. The critics gave this a 49%, and the audience gave it just under 70 at 68%. The plot, it's about three women who are college friends, and I think this movie really benefited from the time 
of when it came out because it's about three college friends who are going through a divorce and are kind of like a midlife crisis. And I think that was a very popular topic at the time because it became so commonplace. Uh, so after years of helping their hubbies kind of climb the ladder of success, these three women have been dumped for newer, sexier women. But the women are determined to kind of turn their pain into gain, and they come up with this devious plan to hit their exes where it hurts, a.k.a. their wallets. So this is in kind of divorce proceedings, but also in other kind of more funny and slapstick ways. It's a goofy comedy, and it's kind of designed specifically to highlight the three leading ladies of Goldie Hawn, Diane Keaton, and Bette Midler. Is it a good movie? I'd say not really, but does that matter? I'd also say not really, because it kind of just succeeds on the chemistry of these three women, and plus the fact that it has an absurd cast. Yeah. So I mentioned Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, Diane Keaton, also Maggie Smith, Sarah Jessica Parker, Stockard Channing, Elizabeth Berkeley, Rob Reiner, Marsha Gay Harden, Timothy Oliphant's first role ever. Mm. Real-life child predator Stephen Collins, the dad from Seventh Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Ivana Trump, Kathy Lee Gifford, and of course our man of the hour, Dan Hedaya. Uh, Dan plays Bette Midler's ex-husband, who is now dating the younger Sarah Jessica Parker. And he's like filthy rich. They kind of make it seem like he owns like an electronics chain, like a Best Buy. This movie was also like a shocking success at the box office. It ended up making just over $180 million dollars mostly from domestic, despite obviously receiving uh, mixed reviews, and was number one for three weeks. So like, they thought it was going to get smoked by a Bruce Willis movie, which I think was called Last Man Standing. Yeah, yeah. And they crushed it. It's, mm-hmm. I think what this movie does well is it's heartfelt and slapstick comedy, and it really feels like a 90s movie. And so will I say that I'm on the critic side 50? No, I think it's a little higher than that, but I do think the audience maybe went a little over. I would say it's probably like lower 60s, but I'm definitely on the audience side with it. James, to your point about the, the box office, it made almost six times its investment. And in terms of return on investment, this is by far his best. Okay. I'm actually shocked that this did so well because of the amount of stars in it, but I guess when you take into account the almost $200 million it made, which at that time was unheard of. It was the, it was the 10th largest grossing movie that year. Mm-hmm. You heard it here first, folks. First Wise Club. A couple more years until our last review. We've got Ransom, played Jackie, a movie alongside Rene Russo, one that seemed pretty high on his like IMDb associated with him. But Seeing I, that his name in that movie is Jackie Brown? Yeah. <laughs> Rule. Yeah. He's in one scene. One scene. It's a great scene, yeah. But he is only in one scene. Isn't he in prison in it too? He's like rumored to be this ruthless, you know, uh, criminal. And Mel Gibson thinks he's behind the kidnapping of his son. That's right. When he goes and he meets with him, immediately Dan Hedaya's like acting presence is great, and he flips the whole scene on his head, and and he makes him realize he's like pretty much like how fucking dare you accuse me of that? Like, um, I hate it in here. I got no friends. I got no family. You think I give a shit about your son? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's crazy that Quentin Tarantino made a whole movie based on his character in Ransom. (laughs) A very compelling scene, Jay. Very compelling. Yeah, and just completely got rid of, you know, him being a white man. Killing it in one scene roles in Mel Gibson movie. (laughs) Yeah, he is. Put that in this IMDb description. Um, That movie that Craig mentioned earlier, Freeway, the one that lost a ton of movie, plays Detective Wallace. Again, 
You guys remember on the Natasha Leone episode, we talked about yeah. Freeway 2, Confessions of a Trick Baby? Yeah. Who could forget? A modern retelling of, of these old folk tales. This is the, the original. This is the OG before Natasha Leone got involved. And this is also the one where I sent... I don't know if I sent it to the full group chat or just Craig and Mark, but it's of Reese Witherspoon saying the N-word like over and over again. And I was like, I imagine she <laughs> looks very fondly on this role years later because it's bad. Oh, wow. I mean, she's dropping N-bomb left and right at this cop in an interrogation. I'm like, dude, thanks. It's basically the story of the big bad wolf and Little Red Riding Hood, but in an urban sense. Gotcha. If that in, sounds intriguing, it's a shit show, but you should go watch it. <laughs> so that's available. We've got Marvin's Room, played Bob. He played uh, Bob De Niro's naive receptionist in this one in 96, a movie that also had our girl Margot Martindale and Diane Keaton. Oh, I forgot and about her. Margot, how could we forget her? In a movie that got him a SAG ensemble nom. So not really his award, but collective. It's the exact opposite of what he plays in a lot of other movies where he's in command, the authority figure. He he's kind of plays a, an older idiot in this role. Alien Resurrection by General Perez. Spoiler, he dies in this movie about halfway through. This was the movie where I really remarked on how he embraces how hairy he is. <laughs> because I am also a very hairy man, and I feel for other hairy men prior to recent because it wasn't up until like the first run of queer eye for the straight guy in like early two thousands, where even the concept of shaving your body hair was even mentioned as a possibility. And so <laughs> in this, it, it, it's like a, it's a full shield of fur. And as a man myself who could have that, if I grew it out, I respect that he just owns it and doesn't address it. How method of him to go Italian American with that. I'm so proud of him. <laughs> <laughs> and as a man cursed with having no hair on his body, it really made his performance in that really made me empathize with hairy people in ways that I never had before. So he should have got an award for this. Jay nearly got Munson. It is a, it is a tough life. And, you know, you have to have different razors for different things and there's different guides. You know, you don't want to do a fade on your body hair. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. And it's just nice to see Alien continuing the pattern of non- Latino people playing Latinos. Um, <laughs> That's one thing I find so funny about his career is like he is the embodiment of Hollywood just saying this guy is n not necessarily white. And because of that, we can cast him as 70% of the world. You look like somebody. <laughs> it's like... He could be yeah. Middle Eastern, he could be South American, he could be... He could be the leader of Valverde, a fictional country. Right, exactly. He could be from like the Mediterranean, pretty much anywhere that people who are just not necessarily fully white are, and he just covers all of that. That's a great point. A Life Less Ordinary, the movie we mentioned earlier with Stanley Tucci, The Tooch, Cameron Diaz, and Holly Hunter. So we've got a lot of Munson's in that one. But I believe that movie lost a bunch of money, if I remember correctly, too. Life Less Ordinary budgeted at $12 million in it, and it only world grossed 4.4. Yeah, not good. It lost 7.6 mil. And then he had a, a recurring character show up on ER between 97 and 05, four different episodes of Herb. That's going to take us to our lowest critics for our final review of the night. And that is A Night at the Roxbury, 1998, in case... 
drew this one. Night at the Roxbury, for those that don't know any pop culture history before the 2000s, is based on a uh, Saturday Night Live skit starring Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell, where they're brothers who go clubbing and basically try to pick up women. This movie is trying to extend that skit into a, well, what would it be like in, in the life of these guys? Dan Hedaya plays their dad. It's a very typical Saturday Night Live skit turned into a movie. It's a fun skit to watch for five to six minutes. But when I was researching for this movie, I remember Chris Kattan, and he, he released a memoir or a bi- an autobiography in 2019. And he claimed that Lauren Michaels pressured him to sleep with a person so she would direct the movie. It's uh, Amy Heckerling. Yeah, Amy Heckerling. She didn't end up directing it, but she did produce it. Chris Kattan is like the worst honeypot ever. <laughs> he might be a worse. Kyle and I had a discussion as to why Chris Kattan was top billed in this movie. Maybe, uh, maybe we're finding out why. I, you know, because he did the dirty work. That's what he did. That's exactly right. To get a producer. I don't think you watched this movie for the quality of acting. <laughs> I think, Correct. Yeah. I don't think that's something any of us will disagree with you on. It has an absolute banger of a soundtrack, first and foremost. Oh, yeah. What is Love by Hathaway, Be My Lover by LaBouche. Yeah, like, it's every club song. <laughs> it is a problematic movie, Craig. Don't get me wrong. These men sexually assault women on the dance floor routinely. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah nonstop. Yeah. That doesn't hold up to much scrutiny in 2022, but... <laughs> no, no. That's true. <laughs> So many good one-liners. Yes. And George Washington and George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite Dan Hedaya quotes, Richard Grieco, you see right through me. <laughs> so good. Not my, my favorite movie, <laughs> but not the worst SNL movie? No. No. No, no way. Yeah, agreed. Hey, and I love Molly Shannon. I think she's Same hilarious. Here. I, I love Colin Quinn. He's one of my favorites. He's hilarious. Yeah, Chaz Palminteri. I know what you're laughing at. Yeah, Chaz. Yeah, I, I was going to say, that's at. where Chaz is. Fuck, that's like the, I think that's probably the most famous part from the movie is him saying, Ooh, did you just grab my ass? He goes, sir, it's a physical <laughs> impossibility for me to have grabbed your ass from all the way over here. I, like, know I know your, your tricks. tricks. <laughs> yeah, I know your tricks. Oh, man. <laughs> Having Jim Carrey wouldn't have hurt. No, I agree. No, no, not at all. But obviously that was impossible. He gets referenced in this movie, though. Chaz Palminteri is like, they're at the club and he's like, oh, is that Jim Carrey over there? He's like, you come over detective. here, you pet detective fuck. Detective bastard. I think Hadaya has some great one-liners in this because it plays just off of his like, yeah, angry, aggressive dad energy. And so it's just him shitting on them the whole time. I love when uh, they're coming up with like their business plan and they're just like, dad would be so proud of us if he was here right now. And he walks in, he goes, what are you two idiots doing? <laughs> 9% from the, uh, from the critic, 69% from the audience. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. Case, where do you fall? It's like a 40 in my book, but it's still hilarious years later. I bet about a 50, probably a little, little bit higher than 40. Heckerling does have a producer credit on the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So Chris Kattan did a half decent job. <laughs> I also love the. I forgot it. Obviously, it wasn't as memorable as some of the others. But when I rewatched it, the line is like, "It's a health shake, Dad. You know, it's so I can hit my physical peak." And he goes, "Honey, come quick, get the video camera. He's gonna hit his peak." <laughs> it's so fucking funny. I totally understand if if somebody there are people that 
we'll watch this for the first time now in 2022, the year of our Lord, and we'll hate it. We'll absolutely despise it. I think it's only something that you enjoy if you watched it during that time and, and mm-hmm. have a connection yeah. to it, an emotional connection to it. It's like Ace Ventura. It's like you watch it now, and if you've never seen it, you're like, what the fuck is going on here? We'll round this out. So 98 to present. It's a big chunk, but the, pretty much the bulk of his career has happened. Up to this point, it happened before the Willennium, which me mentioning the Willennium takes on a whole new, just a whole new face now, now that, <laughs> now, now with the slap going on and Oscar winning yeah. Will Smith. Right. Also 98, he's in a civil action alongside John Travolta, James Gandolfini, Will, William H. Macy, Tony Shalhoub, Kathleen Quinlan, big cast, plays John. Read the book. Oh, you've read the book? Book is awesome. The movie is so-so. Well, he returns back to the stage in 99 alongside Al Pacino in Broadway in the basic training of Pablo Hummel. Couldn't find any reviews on it, so I don't know if it was any good. Anybody here going to Broadway in 1999 and end up catching this particular production? I had tickets, but I was busy that day. I was 11 and got a little distracted and couldn't make it. So <laughs> He gets his first, I guess, for since his primetime Emmy nom, his, his first like semi-legitimate acting award nomination he got a satellite nom for best actor in 1999's dick he plays richard nixon because he looks like the guy a movie with michelle williams kirsten dunst fun movie i'd recommend checking it out it basically is with will ferrell it's um hypothesized that two high school girls that used to walk his dog were deep throat <laughs> I had never seen this movie, but I've heard you guys talk either. positively about it before. And then when I saw the premise of it and kind of how it started, I was immediately intrigued. I was like, all right, this is stupid, but like it's on purpose. It's like a farce of Richard Nixon and Watergate. And it's I think it's funny how they make Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams just like teeny boppers who don't know shit about what's going on. And they're like falling ass backwards through this huge political scandal. The best, the best part of the movie is at the end when they're they're describing. They're like, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna go on the record and not reveal you you as a source. We're gonna just call you deep deep throat." And they're like, "Why?" He's like, "Frankly, it's just kind of embarrassing." Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's 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 kind of embarrassing. And then you think at the beginning of the movie when he tries to trick him into saying who it is, and he cuts it off. He's like, "Don't tell, don't 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 tell him, don't tell him." The last scene is obviously Hadea flying away in his plane. The, the, the girls have set up a banner, and he sees it. And it just says, you suck, comma, dick. You suck, dick. Uh, <laughs> the missing minutes from Nixon's oh. recordings are just because she left him, like, a love voice message. And he, had to, he was so embarrassed, he had to delete it. She's like, you're just, like, the best president ever. And, like, I think I'm in love with you. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, he's fine. I, mean, I think he's pretty good as, like, as Richard Nixon. He. I mean, it's not the best Richard Nixon I've seen on screen, but I don't think it's awful either. Looks enough like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not really about him. It's more about the girls. And I think they land the plane pretty well at the end of connecting it. I think it's hilarious what they were able to pull off. I love these like alternative history type movies that have like a comedy aspect to it. So Sounds kind of Forrest Gumpy. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. All right. The Hurricane played Detective Pesca. Another cop role. A slimy cop. Sorry, who, who, Pesca? Detective. Interesting. He's moving on up. Moving up the ranks. And he's a slimy-ass cop in this movie, because he is trying to frame the hurricane the whole movie. Denzel is fantastic in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was nominated for Best Actor in this. Yeah, this is a great movie. And and Hedaya, again, 
even though he's playing a cop in this, he, he plays a sketchy one very well. He is out to get him. And that, that whole scene where he's screaming at, screaming out and telling him, like, they don't know anything about this area. And just, just absolutely laying into him, basically be like, get the hell out of here. Stay out of here if you know what's good for you. Pretty damn good in that scene. Featured that great Bob Dylan song as well. All right, Willennium. First movie of the Willennium, 2000, Shaft. Plays Detective Roselli, Jay. There you go again. Another detective role. Also in 2000, starred opposite a Super Dave Osborne in The Adventures of Super Dave. God, that movie's fucking terrible. It's awful, but he plays <laughs> a very, very different role in that movie than he does in anything else. He does. I agree. I truly believe it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's awful. <laughs> I didn't finish it. <laughs> Judging Amy, 2000, does an episode of that. And then Mulholland Drive plays Vincenzo, 2001. Small role in this. I love Mahan Drive. That's yeah, one of my ten favorite movies ever. He's in it for Mahan Drive is a very. It's like a collection of a hot second, know. right? Yeah, it's so good. Mm-hmm. The guy who makes Justin Theroux cast the other girl, right? Isn't that what he is? Yeah, there. He's in the meeting where the guy like spits up the cappuccino. Mahan Drive is like a weird collection of like famous actors who are only in the, who are only in it for like two minutes, but it's great. It's a David Lynch movie. It's a total mindfuck. Naomi Watts, absolutely incredible in that film. You know, I miss Warren on every episode we do, but we especially miss him for this because we need somebody to be able to talk about the authenticity of a swim coach. And that's what Dan Hadaya is playing here. I don't know what swim coaches are like. Warren would be able to tell us, though. That's true. That's true. We'll have to maybe we'll ask him to record something in post for us. He can watch Swim Fan. It'll be his only Hadaya reviewing. Yeah, I, w- I want a legit critique of form. I want swimming <laughs> breakdown. Does he know shit about swimming? Robots, 2005, alongside the Tooch and Natasha Leone. So a couple more crossovers with them. He's in Strangers with Candy in 2005. A role alongside Matthew Broderick, Chris Pratt, Alice and Janney. So lots and lots more crossovers there. And you see there's big gaps here. So we went, you know, 03 to 05. We're jumping to 2010 now to The Extra Man. He plays Aresh, a movie that is led by Paul Dano and and Kevin Klein. So I was interested to watch it because I really like Paul Dano. It's uh, pretty much everything I've ever seen him in. I've enjoyed. Katie Holmes is in this. And John C. Riley plays kind of like a homeless looking man. He's not necessarily homeless, but homeless looking guy. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a gigolo movie. And Dan plays an angry, jealous Iranian character. Gigolo. I wish Dan was the gigolo in this movie, but Paul Dano <laughs> is the gigolo in training in The Extra Man. Kevin Klein is the the real gigolo extraordinaire in this one. Adaya would have got massive points in range from me on my Munsonator <laughs> if he was playing the gigolo this movie. He's rocking the Iranian accent, so I guess that's the different part of this, but he is just as angry as he normally is. 2011, we've got Too Big to Fail, played Barney Frank, um, alongside William Hurt. Wow, he must not have been in this very much, because I don't really remember him. No, I don't think he has a ton of screen time. <laughs> ah, he said the magic word. Sticking with the brand. He's sticking with the brand. He's not in this too much. On point. Clutter, 2013, plays Walter Bickford alongside Natasha Leone. And get this, guys, another angry character. Hmm. Would have never seen it coming. He's, is he angry because he's not a cop? He's not a law enforcement figure? Is that what it is? No, done a lot of stuff with Natasha Leone. Yes. Well, he's doing a lot of smaller stuff after 2000, and her career has mirrored that in a lot of ways up until recently. Yeah. Up until Russian Doll has kind of revived her career. We make jokes about the roles he's taking, but this guy's been paying the bills handsomely. Yes. But you know Dan Hedaya is loaded. 
Yeah, if you had to tell me, be like, hey, you're only in this movie for five minutes, but you're just going to play the same guy you played last time, I would take that for the next 20 years. Absolutely. You know, just like go to the grocery store. Yeah, <laughs> rock. Gotham, two episodes of that between 2014 and 2019. A couple episodes of the mini project. Plays a goblin in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I guess his most recent movie that he did is a movie that's on Netflix called The God Committee. He plays a, uh, a slimy dad donor type who's trying to get his kid a heart transplant in a movie that's all about the, the committee who decides who gets heart transplants with Kelsey Grammer, Julia Stiles. Au contraire, Kyle. He's in another movie in 2021 called Slapface, uh-huh. which was a Shudder original and not a bad movie. Shocker, not a large part. And he played a sheriff. Assume that movie is about the 2022 Oscars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well done. It has nothing to do with the Oscars. It's about oh a uh, creature in the forest. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, okay. A little intrigue, a little teaser for the, for the people. No. Well, and over his career, he's played some other recurring characters we didn't really mention. He was in Mama's Boy, 87 to 88, One of the Boys, 1989. I'm sensing a theme here as I read through these. Fallen Angels, maybe there's some boys in there, 93 to 95. Yes, Dear, 2000 to 2003. Lucky, 2003. The Book of Daniel, which I read was pretty controversial. Only lasted a season. Father Frank, he's now mm-hmm. a uh, ad he's a father to the list. He's a, yes. <laughs> and then Blue Bloods uh, from 2015 to 2019. Did three episodes of that over that time. So 141 credits. We hit quite a few of them, uh, but... You know, you can fill in the gaps for the other probably 60 to 70 we didn't mention. They probably have a detective or officer lieutenant in front of it. <laughs> Rigby maybe has some top performances for us. What do we got? I hope Rigby's list is longest Dan Hadaya rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Based off these rolls, that's probably, probably right without actually saying that. Um, so this is from 2013. It's interesting. It's actually from this film site called And So It Begins. And they do these series called In Character where they highlight five essential roles of an actor's career, and then they give one that's the best of the best. So it's technically six roles, and one is the best. Mm. So I, I was intrigued by this list and the format, and they've actually done... They have Shea Wiggum on here, Kyle. Yes. If you want to get that later. <laughs> that for when the wheel selects it in 2029. Who wants, to, who wants to start? Jay is our guest. You chime in, man. You get the first one. I'll knock out the easy one, Clueless. Yep, that's that's an essential role. It's not the best, but it's essential. Running scared is the second one. Nope. <laughs> Case is trying to make fetch happen here. That's not going to happen. Commando. No, I wish it's not on here. Though. Oh, wrong side of history. Blood simple's got to be on there. I'll take the other low hanging fruit. So blood simple is actually the best of the best. Oh Julian wow. Julian Marty he lists blood simple as Dan Hedaya's best role. I know fundamental opposition with that. What about hurricane? Hurricane is an essential role. Night of the Roxbury. Nope. <laughs> Shitty list. I'm thinking this person's going kind of prestige I'm thinking, I'm wondering if they're just throwing in Mulholland Drive. Uh, Mulholland Drive is listed as a notable one, but it's not in the top six. Mm. Are these TV shows too or just movies? Just movies. Okay. I was going to say Cheers because that's one of his big ones. Oh, yeah. What about his role as Trini in Nixon? Nope. As Richard Nixon. No, interesting. Oh, wow. Did anybody say Usual Suspects yet? No. Mm. Come on. Nope. Uh, Adam's Family. Nope. First Wives Club. No. Oh, wow. Holy cow. Dude, no idea. 
Uh, is person a big fan of robots? No. <laughs> <laughs> Love that one line in Maverick. <laughs> no, one one is in for one scene, but he is like we've talked about it, and he steals the scene. Oh, ransom, ransom, ransom. Yes, that's a good one. Yeah. How about Marvin's room? Nope. Joe versus the volcano. Nope. We still need two more. Rigby, did we mention both of them? We mentioned both of them. We didn't really discuss them though. Oh man. Oh. We kind of uh, discussed one, but very light, very light, and then we Alien Resurrection. Nope. Rookie of the Year. Nope. Dude, just. You have to tell us at this point. This person's deep cutting at this point. Yeah, hit us with the other two. All right, one is from one of my favorite directors, Kyle. De Palma? Yeah, which one was that? Oh, mm. so it's... Uh, Wise Guys? Wise, Wise Guys. Guys. Yeah, he's he's pretty good in that. I'm, I, I don't mind that. This says, Brian De Palma's cur- curiously un-DePalma-esque mob comedy is amusing for so- several reasons. A chief reason being Hadea's stereotypical mob boss. So yep. he liked his performance in this. Okay. And last but not least, we mentioned this movie, but we didn't really talk about it. You just kind of mentioned it in passing. To Die For, featuring Nicole Kidman. Mm, Oh, yeah. I didn't see that. It's a good movie. I didn't either. Really knocked that one out of the park. (laughs) (laughs) Got crushed. I did, too. That's a really cool list and concept. That was awesome. Appreciate you, Riggs. We're going to get into the Munson meter. What we do... We rate every actor on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors. Those factors could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, their awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops, box office success, or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us. I have the honor of going first. Setting the table with a character actor for the rest of the group is interesting and kind of a challenge here. We talked about Tyler Perry being probably the toughest we've ever had to rate last time. Not me. <laughs> I have a little <laughs> bit easier time here. So I'll, I'll say this. I think he can be, he can be funny given characters are, are given the opportunity to do so. Like Cheers, his character is Nick Tortelli. I just don't think he's pursued that much there. So he's not going to get a lot on the comedic side from me. He has a virtually non-existent awards footprint. He's had a long career as a supporting actor, and he's been in a lot of movies and had has had a steady, for the most part, steady career. The last 20 years have been a little bit, little bit less busy. But again, he's 80, so there's only so many roles for him, and I'm sure energy-wise, he's probably not tackling the world. A little bit of a bump for his stage work. I, you know, even though he's not done a ton of it, I respect that when they step onto the stage because that's a, that's tough. You don't have a million takes and you can just redo what you're doing. That's a, that's a tough performance to pull off. I think he's de- he's a dependable character actor who's at his best when he's angry. Again, I try to find something that every actor is good at that others necessarily aren't. And I think Dan, yes, he could play law enforcement well, but I think he he's good at being an angry character in, in any role that allows him to be with all that said i'm gonna give him i'm gonna give him what i think is a decent score i think it's fair i'm gonna give him a 54 case you're up i don't think there's a ton to talk about in terms of what he's doing uh the only thing i'll say is you know it's pretty respectable to look at somebody who's been involved in the industry for six decades i mean he's it's crazy that he's he's acted in six different decades doesn't have a ton of range roles are, are pretty memorable I think he steals scenes really well, but when I'm comparing him against some of the other performers we've done, it's just really tough to to give him super high marks in areas. So with that being said, I'm going to give him a 57. Jay is our guest Munson. Last time he gave Holly Hunter a strong 88. Let's see if uh, Dan can compete with that. 
thing with Holly Hunter is like, I think she might've given the best performance I've ever seen in a movie. So that, that certainly helped her. Mm-hmm. Anna Dea, I would say not in my top 10 favorite performances. Um, off the top of my head, I haven't fully done that exercise, but I'm going to say firmly not 10. When he came up on the wheel and I was like, Ooh, Dana Dale, let's dive in. I was like, guy looks incredible. He's like only in the seventies. Could this guy become like a stable actor? (laughs) (laughs) And I love him for that. But Lewis is kind of it as far as what is Dan Hedaya going to be remembered for? Yeah. It's clueless. And so you talk about a long career. Certainly he had that, but he was just merely just a working actor. And at a certain point, it even just stopped being memorable roles. He was just set dressing. Yeah. And I'm going to give him, oh man, I'm thinking a 44. I'm going to give him two extra points for the depth of his chin dimple. That a boy. And put him at a 46. I love it. What about chest hair? I'm going to give him one more for the chest hair. You know what? Minus one for the chest hair just makes me. Oh. We're down to a forty-five. <laughs> I respect the shit out of that. I love it. I love, love, love it. Okay, uh, James. So yes, he is a working actor, and typical number of working actors. Most of them who have stage training like him, he's highly sought out for his talents, right? But he's not really well known, right? So he plays the same guy, and you see it. You know, he's consistently the furious guy thick New York accent. He's like us kind of down on his luck criminal or wise cracking cop. Um, but really you know him as Alicia Silverstone's dad, no matter what you recognize him from though, there is no doubt that you do indeed recognize him. You see him and you're like, Oh yeah, I know who that is. I think that's because he kind of has accessibility on screen. He's clearly playing where he's from in Brooklyn. Right. And he comes kind of like alive. You're like, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a typical New Yorker. Because of that, I think he has a great career to look back on as a great character actor, as a working actor. But it's honestly that and only that, um, as you guys have mentioned. And so for that, I've given him a 59. Rigby, round us out. So, yeah, you guys hit them all. I think the fact that he has had a long career in Hollywood speaks to you know the fact that he's found his, his alley and he's stuck with it as the angry, sort of detective, stern, authoritative figure. He does get credit for being in two of my favorite so bad movies that they're good, which are Commando and A Night at the Roxbury. I'm not going to dock any points for that. (laughs) The range is obviously a huge downfall on his score for me. Just not really much there. No awards footprint. Not really much pop culture, except for maybe Clueless. Not really much pop culture impact either. Performance in Blood Simple was great. In an otherwise, you know, good movie, his performance was awesome in that. So all that being said, I'm going to give him a 67. All right. And Jay, I want to give you a shout out. You now have the lowest score of a guest ever. Wow. By seven points. Oh, wow. That's huge. This is a, this is a moment. You know, I want to the highest one that. last time and the, well, by far and away, the lowest one this time. Chris Tucker was the lowest one before this with a 52. So you've, you've set the new bar. So with that, that is going to give Dan Hedaya a 56.4. And you'll remember, he came in at 55th of 59 when it came to the box score numbers. Yep. At 56.4, it puts him in 58th place. Wow. Wow. Just oh boy. three points ahead of Chris O'Dowd and just behind Natasha Leone. So, Natasha Leone, to your point, Jay, works a lot with her. There's a reason. You're not with Natasha. At last. 
Not last. There you go. Which is interesting because you picked Dan Hedaya, so it's it's even more commendable when you're like you came in you're like i didn't love most of his stuff so he's gonna get a super low score i love that i respect Mm -hmm. that i think it was a hit job (laughs) yeah i I just wanted i just wanted to speak ill of a day i've had a grudge against dan a day for so long (laughs) finally got back at him james what does he have uh coming soon nothing (laughs) good segment james you know good podcast boys (laughs) everybody have a good night what does he have coming retirement potentially He's just so, chilling, man. Hanging out. That's what a lifetime of cop rules will get you, man. You yeah, can, dude. You can it's been a stressful run. Back to blue. Just sail off into the sunset. You think he played so many cop roles, he's actually getting a pension? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> he's earned it. I hope. So five actors that we're throwing onto the wheel for the next episode. So a big episode 60 here. Hitting the 10s. We got Mahdi Grohl coming back. He was our boy, Mahdi. He from Movie Marathoners and now just lighting up the Pokemon world on YouTube, just getting serious numbers and all this stuff. He was here for Chris Hemsworth and Sam Rockwell, so he picked some goodies. Here are the five actors. He picked one of them. You all tell me who you like, who you don't like. We've got Haley Steinfeld, Julie Hagerty, Nicholas Holt, Brie Larson, and our boy Chaz Palminteri. What do we like? What do we dislike? It's a good list. Very, very diverse list. I think Brie Larson. Yeah, I would say Brie Larson or Nicholas Holt would be good. He's been in some really good movies. I mean, Haley Steinfeld's been in awesome movies, too. I don't know. That'd, that'd be a good one. Although, I wouldn't be disappointed with either one of those. Julie Haggerty is kind of the same character in every movie, but every movie she's in, she <laughs> crushes it. So, Chaz Palminteri, so we could just talk about his lines in Night at the Roxbury again. Oh, oh Julie Haggerty. We would get to talk about Freddy Got Fingered. I think that would be the first. Oh, right. yes, it would. Ever since Alicia Vikander said that was her least favorite movie of all time. Yeah. That was the yeah. one time we talked about it. I don't know much about Julie Haggerty. Haggerty. Is it Haggerty? How do I pronounce her last name? I honestly don't even know who that is. You you would have to describe her. I don't want to. Have you ever seen Airplane, James? Nice. No, I've seen clips of Airplane. That was her first movie. Yeah, airplane. airplane oh okay she's in what about bob too which i what love about bob she was just in she was the yeah. mom in marriage story oh okay and yep. marriage story is what i remember her from oh i yeah. saw that too and i just can't remember yeah i don't know a ton ton about her she's um, like she's got this distinctively high voice that like she literally can't play any other character but just like a she's got a really interesting delivery yeah mm-hmm. now she just plays mom so that's all she does yeah she can't play any other character but like an anxious mom basically yeah, two, Nicholas Holt and Haley Steinfeld, both young actors. So that there wouldn't be a ton to get into, but they've both done a ton in their short amounts in entertainment. God, she's in that yeah. movie, A Master Builder. Y'all should do the episode just so you have to watch that god-awful movie. <laughs> Case, what are you thinking? Who'd be your pick? Oh, Chaz Palminteri, only because we knocked two of them off tonight, so we need to rewatch those. <laughs> watch a Bronx Tale. Like practical. That's true. Oh, yeah. What about you, Jay? If you had to pick, if we are going to be like Jay, back-to-back Jay episodes, what are you picking? You know, I... <sighs> I might go Brie Larson just because she's kind of had the child star thing now to where she is now going prestige to Marvel. She's had a very diverse mm-hmm. career. I'm interested to see where Haley Steinfeld goes, though, because that would be an opportunity to talk about True Grit, which absolutely rules. So, mm-hmm. And yeah. she's a singer, too, so we could talk another multi-entertainer, not just an actress. As was Brie. That's true. Who do you think Mahdi picked? He picked one of these five. I think I think we're doing Bree. Same. He picked Hemsworth and Rockwell. Gonna be Holt. I'm going Bree. All right. Jay says Holt. You guys say Bree. Case, you got a guess? Gotta keep going with the fellas. Haggerty. 
Uh, okay, a little wild card. Well, we'll see. We don't decide. Madi doesn't decide. Jay doesn't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see how she rolls. Jay, this is wonderful, man. I know your life and busy schedule, expecting dad, all of those things. We appreciate you jumping on with us and chatting a little Dan Hidea. This is your chance to kind of, you know how this goes. This is a chance for you to plug what's going on in your world. Words of wisdom for our audience. Anything about the podcast? The show is you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really love doing this show. Thank you guys so much for having me. As far as my podcasts are concerned, you can find me on the Holly Hunter episode of Munson's at the Movies. Um, <laughs> Crawford, great episode, wanna... by the way. Legend. That one, that one was fun. I enjoyed I watched a lot of Holly Hunter movies getting ready for that one. That was fun. Yes, you did. As for my podcast, I, I'm doing work over at In Session Film. We have a weekly podcast where be you noticed during episode that i often derail to talk about directors well you do a bunch of director series over on our podcast so it is always top of mind for me we cover all sorts of different directors right now we're doing howard hawks so it's like 30s bringing up baby rio bravo all that stuff that's sweet cool we also cover every week we do that director series and then we normally cover one kind of lesser known movie like we have another show on our, I guess, if you want to call it a network or whatever, well, we'll they will do the big blockbusters, and then we do kind of the number two or three. It's like a foreign film or an indie or whatever it is. So a lot of variety on our show. That's In Session Film. Go check me out there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, where I'm moderately active, to at Mr. J. Ledbetter on there. That's all I got. Hey, man, we appreciate you being here, brother. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, dude, awesome. It was fun. Always, yeah. Just, just anytime. I'm I'm ready to go. Before you leave, I have a question for you. Did you just grab my ass? <laughs> Jay just called from Atlanta. He said there's no way he could have grabbed your ass. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be it. I'll text you that in a couple weeks from here. Um, all right. So as we wrap up, um, you can always catch us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Dan Hedaya? Hey, you. Anything happens to my daughter, I got a 45 and a shovel. I doubt anybody would miss you. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? So who are you really fighting with? Richard Grieco. You see right through me.